go. All right. So, let's see. How many people in here work for the welfare department? Not, not a lot. How many people work for God's welfare department? Every hand should be in the air right now. Yeah. How many people work for God's welfare department? So I don't have to list all the passages where God tells us to care for each other. This is not a new concept. You do know them. But today we're going to address one specific passage that deals with the most extreme circumstances. A lot of people neglect this one because it addresses poverty to the point of homelessness and selling yourself into slavery. That's a very difficult concept for us to think about, especially in modern day. Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 43 now, in a case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means among you falters, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or resident, so that he may live with you. Do not take any kind of interest from him, but fear your God, so that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver to interest, nor your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you to the land of Canaan, and to be your God. Now, if a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired worker, as if he were a foreign resident. He shall serve with you up to the year of Jubilee. He shall then leave you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family, so that, you, so that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave's sale. You shall not rule over them with severity, but are to revere your God. So we should first take a moment to note that there's no blame assigned for this poverty. The text simply says becomes poor and does not indicate that we are to act differently based on why they are poor. Remember that there are people both then and now that did not cause their own poverty. We should also note that Leviticus clearly states that the man who sold himself shall serve up to the year of Jubilee, then he shall go free. So let's look at Deuteronomy 15, which talks about the year of Jubilee and this particular concept. Deuteronomy 15.12 says, If your fellow countryman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you for six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. And when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall give generously to him from your flock, your threshing floor, and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord has blessed you. Does any of this sound like the modern concept of welfare, governmental system? Not remotely. What we see here is people providing for their countrymen in times of extreme need. Family was already provided for in this situation, as most households had more than just a married couple and children. But this extended the concept to all countrymen, all Israelites, and to us, all Christians. It's not the state or county's job to pick up the broken pieces of a, of a shattered life. It's our job. It may seem hard, but I've actually seen this in action multiple times. I've seen people take a person or a house or a family into their household and live with them without charging them anything. And when that person or family left, they left in a better financial state and a better spiritual state than when they arrived. So the main difference between biblical welfare and governmental welfare is relational. I can take care of a brother in need without a welfare application. This may include a spare room and food. It may include clothing and job, job search assistance. It may include providing medicine. 
Under severe circumstances, it may include remediation. I don't want to have to teach an adult how to live, but if that's what they need, that's actually my job. That's not how the welfare system works. The governmental welfare system can provide very little of this. In fact, in the county where I live, it's a bed at a homeless shelter and $103 per month. That's what you get if you're homeless. Single-person homes. Also remember, if the passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, help is supposed to be temporary. Living on the welfare system is not a biblical option. In some counties, it is an actual option. No time limits. As a quick note, these passages are not speaking to the elderly or disabled. You do not kick your grandmother out of the house and say good luck. So now we've talked a little bit about the biblical welfare system versus the governmental welfare system. We're going to talk about responsibilities of those giving assistance. Some of them are spelled out in the passages I read earlier, but there's a little more to it if you look deeper. So first, let's remind ourselves what the actual passage said. Do not take any kind of interest from him. And I would include charging rent to the unemployed here. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for profit. You shall not subject him to a slave service. That means he's treated as a hired worker. He shall serve with you up to the year of Jubilee, so a maximum of up to seven years. He shall then leave you, he and his sons with him, and go back to their own family. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall give generously to him. So you should all quickly see that this is all for the benefit of the person you are helping. Your primary motivation is self-sacrificing love, and you are going to take a financial loss. Compare this to working for the governmental welfare system. They're motivated by a paycheck. Some of them also like helping people, but if they're not paid, they will leave. And they're using other people's money to render assistance, not their own. That's the opposite of God's welfare system. In God's system, we pay in order to help people. In addition to self-sacrificing love, we're required to invest in the person we are helping. We know them, we love them, we are actively involved in their lives. If you're not doing that with the person who came to live with you, you're doing it wrong. In the governmental system, investment in your life is a very bad idea. At best, knowing you and loving you outside of work will get them fired very quickly. The next difference is accountability. If I take someone into my home, I'm accepting responsibility for them. I'm helping them get back on their feet. There's a variety of reasons they could need that help, but I am there for all of them. And when they leave, they're to leave better off than when they arrived, so that they will not have to sell themselves to another brother next year. I am responsible to God for their financial improvement. In the governmental welfare system, the worker is not responsible for any of their clients. If they make a mistake, they just fix it. They're not held accountable. Or someone else fixes it, and they aren't held accountable. And I've personally seen mistakes in the governmental welfare system that have massive negative impacts on people's life. But no one is actually held accountable for the harm done. Now, this all might seem pretty extreme, but this is what's required for this, this type of assistance. Remember, we're looking at people who are poor to the point of homelessness. In less dire circumstances, most of the same rules still apply, 
but you're not actually accepting responsibility for someone if you help them out with their rent for a month. You should help, still absolutely love them, though. So now that we've talked about responsibilities, we're done, right? Nope. Because when you're receiving aid, you have responsibility, too. A lot of people skip this, and the governmental system skips almost all of it intentionally. So the first responsibility when you're receiving aid is to be honest and humble. The modern version of selling yourself to your brother is admitting that you can't make it and saying, please help me. I've got nothing. Most people hate doing this. But honestly, if your family is facing eviction, there's no room for pride and deceit should not be an option. You need help. Outside of the church, the world will teach you that you're allowed to lie to get what you need or want. It's only wrong if you get caught. And I can tell you that with 100% certainty, the governmental welfare workers are lied to constantly. Sometimes they catch them, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they know that people are lying, but they can't do anything about it. But you are answerable to God for your attitude and your honesty, even when asking for help. The second responsibility you have when receiving aid is to work. This may seem obvious, but in the governmental welfare system, there is no work requirement for most programs, and there are many ways around the work requirements when they do exist. Leviticus and Deuteronomy both listed work as a given. It was not optional. Remember, when you take someone into your house, they are not treated as a slave, but they are treated as a hired worker. They're not a child. So, if you're supposed to be a responsible adult, that means work. In addition, you will be released from your debt on the year of Jubilee. At that point, you're going to fend for yourself. You're supposed to have been working, not just working as a hired worker, but working on improving yourself. Many welfare recipients, recipients have marketable job skills. Some don't, but for us, that's not an option. And if all you can do is a minimum wage job, then do a minimum wage job and learn to do something better. The third responsibility you have when receiving aid is to invest in the family that is assisting you. You're not allowed to hide in their spur room and avoid contact. You're definitely not allowed to cause strife. They're sacrificing for your benefit because they love you and love God. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, you're in the wrong religion. Sadly, there are people that will demand assistance. This doesn't seem like it fits with the humility and honesty, does it? It doesn't. There are people that will judge you for not rendering aid on their terms. And typically, these are not people in your life. But I have seen a few, and I've read some pretty horrific stories about family members doing this to each other. These are not people you should take into your home. They do not have an attitude of humility, and I would doubt their honesty. They're demanding that you help them based on their definitions, so I can't expect them to follow the Levitical work requirement either. And they're definitely not interested in investing in your family. As soon as someone demands assistance or argues with you about how you help, they're breaking the trust necessary to invite them into your home. And by trying to enforce their terms on you, they're refusing the help that you could offer them. You're not required to put your family at risk to help someone that is not trustworthy. Remember back to the beginning, we said when a brother becomes poor, not when someone who is untrustworthy becomes poor. So now that we've finished with responsibilities, we're finally done, right? Nope. We have one question we're going to ask ourselves still. In the biblical welfare system, you're, if you're in a position where you have to sell yourself into slavery, 
or in modern times become homeless, your brethren should be there to help. But it doesn't always happen. Christians in extreme need will turn to the government first or end up on the street or in a homeless shelter. So our final question is, why? If you have a family and congregation, you should never be homeless. So why didn't you ask for help? So there are three easily visible answers, probably more, but three that I could see. Sadly, the first one is simply pride. People don't want to admit to what they perceive of as failure. There are people who would rather rather fail quietly and disappear than ask for such an extreme degree of help. This will typically happen with single people because when you have children, you're more likely to ask for aid for them. So when it comes to single people that are at risk of becoming homeless, the best way I know to help them is to actually seek them out. They usually aren't going to be asking. But uh, they also don't want to be homeless. So if you seek them out, there's a pretty good chance they're going to say yes. If you say you have a spare room or a couch, they're more likely to say yes than if they had to come to you to ask. So you can't be isolated from the community and do this. If you don't know people, you won't know who needs help. The second reason Christians can become homeless is that they don't know any better. They don't know that this kind of aid exists in the church. Ever since the welfare expansion in the 1960s, the U.S. government has advertised they are here to assist you. Welfare checks and child support can take the place of a father. Food stamps and Medicaid are advertised on TV, billboards, and radio. They want more people on government aid. It's part of their business model. And they are doing a much better job of telling people than we are. There shouldn't be a single Christian on the streets as long as we have space for them in our homes. And we do. Every congregation should make sure that its people know they can ask for help. But what about Christians with no congregation? That leads me to the final reason there are Christians in dire need that aren't receiving help. Isolation. If you don't know me, I can't help you. If you only met me yesterday and you asked to sleep on my couch, I won't trust you. There's a lot of people I've known for years and trust. If they need help, I'm available. The problem is the vast majority of people who need this kind of help are already isolated. That's why they aren't getting any help. It's usually a big factor in the fact that they need help in the first place. The solution comes back to Leviticus again. The concept of an isolated Israelite did not exist. I think if you told any of them that you don't know your brothers, it would have confused them. The concept of an isolated Christian shouldn't exist either. Every believer must be in community. They must have people they know and trust. And since people and relationships are messy, that takes effort. You have to invest in people. Only then will you be able to help those in need, and only then will you be able able to receive help if you're in need. So you may have noticed I started talking about welfare and ended up talking about community. That was not an accident. It's a requirement. If you aren't in community, you're not able to give or receive assistance. So let's look back at the responsibilities I mentioned when giving and receiving aid. Self-sacrificing love, accountability, intentional investment in people, also known as fellowship, honesty, humility, submission to biblical definitions and responsibilities, and work, whether that's done in the home or out of it.
if you're already doing these things in the community, you'll have people in your life that can take care of you if you're in need. And you'll have the attitude necessary to take care of someone if they need it. If these concepts are foreign to you, or if you don't know anyone else that does them, then you need to change. You need to find a community that does them and start doing them yourself. The biblical concept of taking a brother into your house requires you to actually be brothers. Fellow followers of God, not strangers, not a neighbor you've talked to twice in the past ten years, not untrustworthy people, not people that cause strife, not criminals. You're looking at your brother. So look again at the requirements I mentioned. Love, accountability, fellowship, honesty, humility, submission to God, and work are not just requirements to take someone into your home or be taken into someone else's home. These are all necessary parts of living as the people of God. This should be done whether or not there is anyone in need. And that brings me to my final point. All of this should be normal. The requirements for taking someone into your home are the same type as the requirements for serving God's people. They're a demonstration of commitment to God and His people. And you would ask the same of a pastor, a deacon, or Sunday school teacher. This should not be seen as special. I mentioned before, I've seen this before. I, I don't actually know how many times I've seen this behavior before. People taking others into their home. This should be normal. For some of us, it is normal. I'd like to say it's normal for all of us, but it doesn't appear so. Where was I? That wasn't in the script. So, providing for each other under any circumstance should be a normal part of living as a people of God. If you're maturing in your faith, you can do this. If you're demonstrating that you, if you are, eh, demonstrating that you're not mature or trustworthy, then you can't. If you're living in isolation from the rest of God's people, you can't. Remember back when I started talking, I said that Leviticus did not assign blame for poverty? It didn't. It does assign responsibility for fixing poverty. In order to be, in order to give or receive aid, you must be in your community, you must be growing in maturity, and you must be obedient to God. Refusal to be in community, refusal to demonstrate that you're trustworthy, will prevent you from both giving and receiving aid. But for those committed to God and in fellowship with His people, this is just another normal part of life. That went really short. Yeah. Questions. (laughs) 